Please stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 through 51. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was the night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching, kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statue of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his mouths be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and one for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded them, commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. In 2017, Mark Maynell, who was a pastor at Langham Place in England, addressed the the connection between identity and memory in a lecture entitled The Pulpit and the Body of Christ. 
He said, BBC Radio 3, the UK's primary classical music station, ran a fascinating series on articles on memory and music. Adam Zeman, a professor of cognitive and behavioral neurology, wrote about amnesia and memory loss and their relationship to epilepsy. Zeman mentioned two patients, Peter and Marcus, who described their amnesia in very similar terms. One said, quote, my memory of my past is a blank space. I feel lost and hopeless. I'm trying to explore a void, end quote. Both described how disconcerting it is to look at photos. Even though they recognize themselves, they have no recollection of the moment. One said that it's like reading a biography of a stranger. He's conscious of recent memories slipping away from him like ships sailing out to sea in the fog, never to be seen again. Maynell continues saying two things stand out in Zeman's essay. First, Without memory, it's hard to cling to an identity. So one of the patients said, I don't have the moorings that other people draw on to know who they are. Second, it's hard to have hope when we don't know our past. As Amon explained, the inability to invoke the past greatly impedes their ability to imagine a future. A lot depends on what we remember. A lot depends on what we remember. This morning's text calls us to remember that all of those who are in Christ, their identity is the covenant community of God. The covenant community of God. Everybody say covenant community. Look at your neighbor, say covenant. Look at your other neighbor, say community. Let's say covenant community. We who are in Christ are part of the covenant community of God. And that is really, really good news. Let me bow our heads. Let me bow my head. You bow your head with me. Let's pray one more time. That God would help us by the end of this time this morning to remember and recognize the beauty that we are the covenant community of God. Will you do that? Our Father, we bow our heads again because you are the God who created all of heaven and earth. You are the God who makes promises that will never be broken. You are the God who calls us to yourself and to one another. People that otherwise would be distinct and separate, but who are brought as one into your family by your grace. Help us this morning to believe that we are your covenant community. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text begins with the judgment of God. At midnight, in the dead of night, God strikes down every firstborn in the land of Egypt. This is from the prince of Egypt, Pharaoh's son, all the way down to the captive in the deepest darkest prison. This is from the most powerful family in the country to the most powerless family in the country. They all suffer the judgment of God. 
Now, I don't know what it's like to lose my firstborn, to carry a son or daughter nine full months, to risk the mother's life giving birth because they didn't have the same technological capacity that we have today, to love and care for that child for one year or seven years or 15 years, and then to have that child snuffed out in one fatal night. I don't know what that's like, but I can just imagine the devastation. I can imagine the despair. I can imagine the mourning. You can see it in this text. If you look at the end of verse 30, it says, And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Not one house. Even in the darkest areas of our country, the west side of Chicago, or south central L.A., we don't read this kind of devastation. There's not one house where someone is not dead. The whole land erupts in weeping. The people and the livestock. Verse 29 says, even the firstborn of the livestock are included in this. Death is all around. The stench, the tears, the grief, the search for meaning, the fear. I want us to go here. You wake up in the middle of the night to hear your loved one gasping in the next room. You stay there until you feel the last breath on your cheek or until you see their chest move up and down one more time. You run outside to tell your neighbor, only to meet your neighbor in the street running toward you. You exchange tear-filled stories and you realize this is not a one-house situation. You begin to put the pieces together. That Hebrew man who could raise his staff and turn the water of the Nile to blood, who could raise his staff and frogs would appear, who raised his staff and flies showed up, who raised his staff and hail came down and destroyed the land and locusts came and destroyed the rest of it, who could raise his staff and darkness fills the whole city. That Hebrew man has been talking about his God who seems to have all the power in the universe. And you begin to realize that the pain you feel and the, the death that you smell is this God's punishment. And you exclaim like they do in verse 33, we shall all be dead. This God might be coming for us. Pharaoh calls an emergency meeting in his Oval Office and summons Moses and Aaron and says, up, go away from my people, both, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord. And bless me. Go serve Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, the one who keeps bringing his this devastation and who now has taken the life of my son. Go serve the Lord. Take your flocks and your herds and be gone. Pharaoh wants him out of here. When the water was turned to blood, he did not turn. When the frogs contaminated everything, he did not turn. When the gnats showed up, he did not turn. When the hail came and devastated his land and all of his cabinet said, why do you let this dude continue this? Let him go. He didn't turn. 
when he couldn't see his hand in front of his face for three days, he didn't turn. But now it touches home. It gets him in the heart. It gets him right in the center of his identity. It hits him in his power. The legacy of his power is called into question. He loses the heir to his throne. When judgment hits him in the gut, he turns. Now, I want to pause, and I just want to whisper this exhortation to you, my friends. Listen, listen to the whisper of God. Listen to the whisper. Listen to the whisper. If there is a sin that God is asking you to relinquish, listen to the whisper of God. If there is a mission he is calling you to do, listen to the whisper of God. If there is a command he is asking you to obey, listen to the whisper of God. Don't play with God's judgment. Turn. Repent from the arrogance of thinking that you know better than God and follow him. In this case, God gave Pharaoh many, many opportunities. He ratcheted up his judgment and Pharaoh did not turn. But now Pharaoh turns. He sends them out and the people of Egypt send them out as well. You see the despair? You see the difficulty? You see the desperation? I want to look at this from Moses' point of view. What does Moses see when all this is happening? Well, what Moses sees through all of this is that God is a covenant-keeping God. God has established his covenant with these people, these descendants of Abraham, these slaves. Way back in chapter 2, we read these words. I want to remind us. At the end of chapter 2, we read these words. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for slavery a cry from, for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. You remember that? God saw them, he remembered, and he knew. God had made a covenant with the ancestors of these people. He told Abraham, when he was still called Abram, way back in Genesis 15, he said, Your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And we'll be servants there and we'll be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. That was Genesis 15, 13 and 14. In Genesis 46, beginning in verse three, God says to Jacob, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. God had made a promise that they would sojourn in a land that was not their own, but that God himself would lead them out. Now Pharaoh is calling Aaron and Moses in and saying, go out. And Moses realizes God is keeping his word. 
This wasn't just a promise to the patriarchs. God gave Moses promises. God told Moses in Exodus 4, verse 22, he said, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Everybody say firstborn. And I say to you, let my son that, I, that go, that he may serve me. If you are, refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Everyone say firstborn. He said firstborn. God made a promise to Pharaoh through Moses that if he did not obey his command, God would take the life of his firstborn son. The author of Exodus wants us to see in verse 29 that this judgment is clearly God keeping his promise. The word firstborn, if I say firstborn, is repeated four times in the first verse. You only said it three times. It's repeated four times. Firstborn in the land of Egypt. Firstborn of Pharaoh. Firstborn of the captive. Firstborn of the livestock. God is keeping his promise to Moses. When Moses sees the deaths of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, he knows that God is a covenant-keeping God. Another promise. God told Moses in Exodus 3, Verse 20, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. When Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron in the middle of the night and says, "Up, go out from among my people. Go serve the Lord. Be gone. There is no mistaking. Pharaoh is letting the people go. Everybody say go. Go. When Moses sees Pharaoh let the people go, he knows what? God is a covenant-keeping God. Another promise, Exodus 3, verse 21. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. God told Moses, you're not going to leave empty-handed. You're not going to walk out with nothing. You're going to walk out with bling. You came into Egypt poor, begging, starving, empty-handed, but you won't leave that way. You will leave like kings with silver and gold and brand spanking new clothing. Now, I bet that was hard to believe. I bet that was hard to believe. You mean we're going to get freed and we're going to get reparations? That's hard to believe when you're enslaved. When you're making bricks all day, it's hard to believe you're going to leave with something, not nothing. When you're making bricks all day and they take the straw from you and say, go gather your own straw, it's hard to believe you're going to leave with something and not nothing. It's hard to believe. I bet when those Israelites went into the homes of the Egyptians and start asking for stuff like their mamas told them not to do, it was hard to believe they're going to walk out with something and not nothing. But look at verse 35 and 36. It says, the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked, thus they plundered the Egyptians. This is not deja vu, but it is almost verbatim what we read in chapter 3. Listen, friends, earlier we whispered, listen to the whisper of God. Here's the thing. 
you don't know what good things God has in store for you. It may not make sense to obey his commands. It would not have made sense for a poor Israelite woman to walk into the home of her oppressor and start asking for stuff. But she does it. She obeys the commands of God and they plunder the Egyptians. The most powerful nation on earth. These slaves living on their knees don't rise up with a revolt. They don't rise up against the powers that be. They don't form a coup and go head to head with the war brandished chariots of Egypt. These slaves, these powerless slaves did one thing. Verse 25. They did what Moses told them to do. They did what the word of God told them to do. They walked in obedience to the commands of God. And they walked out knowing and believing that God is a covenant keeping God. Amen. God is a covenant keeping God. He is trustworthy. Whatever he calls you to do, do it. It will be better that way. And the God who made this covenant is the God who made himself known to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden or work to exhaustion, and I will give you what? Rest. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find what? Rest for your souls. Let Jesus yoke himself to you. If you are getting tired of getting beat down by your sin, if you are getting tired of getting beat down by your pride, if you're getting tired of being beat down by your lust, if you're getting tired of getting beat down by your greed, if you're getting tired of being beaten down by your addictions, by your envy, by your gluttony, let Jesus yoke himself to you. He says in John 6, 35 to 37, he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. But all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus Christ, the covenant keeping God who died on the cross for your sins and rose again to conquer death and give you hope of abundant life has made a promise that if you come to him, he will never cast you out. Never cast you out. He will be with you forever. He is totally trustworthy. When he calls us to himself, he calls us to a life of repentance, turning from our way and our will to his way and his will. When he calls us to himself, he calls us to a life of surrender, surrendering our fears, surrendering our cravings, Surrendering our longings for his good and his perfect pleasure, he calls us to obedience, to obeying his, his whispers and trusting that his command is good. So the question is this morning, what promises of God are you not yet believing? What promises did he give you in that quiet time three years ago that you have forgotten about? What are you wanting right now 
more than you want God's will. What what craving has become more important than God's commandments? What desire has grown sweeter than knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord? Because it's not worth it. Those gods are not covenant-keeping gods. There's only one who keeps his word all the time and who will never disappoint. God is a covenant-keeping God. Everybody say covenant. And we are a community on the way. Turn to your neighbor and say, we are on the way. We are on the way. This phrase is coined by an Old Testament scholar who noticed this. He says, this people is a community on the way. They do not tarry. Opportunities for freedom must not be dallied with. One must take them and run. Even God-initiated moves take advantage of the moment. The opportunity may not come round again. And they travel light. They are not burdened by provisions that would weigh them down. Much that is near and dear to the life of bondage is left behind. If freedom is not to become another form of slavery. Let me read that one more time. This people is a community on the way. Everybody say on the way. They do not tarry. Opportunities for freedom must not be dallied with. One must take them and run. Even God-initiated moves take advantage of the moment. The opportunity may not come round again. And they travel light. They are not burdened by provisions that would weigh them down. Much that is near and dear to the life of bondage is left behind. If freedom is not to become another form of slavery. We are a community on the way. We who have trusted in Jesus Christ for redemption for our sins, whether that was this morning or whether that was 40 years ago, are on the way. Everyone say on the way. We have left the slavery of bondage to the penalty and power of sin, and we are on the way to the promised land of God's eternal deliverance. This means we can't stay where we are. We must not tarry. We must take advantage of every opportunity for freedom. God tells us in Galatians 5 verse 1, he says, for freedom, Christ has set us what? Free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. See, if we have been yoked to Christ, then do not have, we don't have to submit again to a yoke of slavery. But if you're like me, the impulse to allow ourselves to become enslaved is a real temptation. Sometimes it feels like we can't not submit. That's why the Holy Spirit encourages us through Paul to stand firm. We resist the impulse to yield to the slavery of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We must leave behind those things that were near and dear to us in the life of bondage. We must travel light. Otherwise, it is so easy to become entangled 
with that which held us captive before, namely any dependence on anything that is not God. Amen. We have been freed to be a community that is on the way. Everyone say on the way. Now that on the way is characterized in this passage by four things. What defines this community? Let's look at this text. First, we see this is a community of urgency. Look in verse 33. Urgency. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. Verse 34. So the people took their dough before it was leavened. Their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. Verse 39. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that had been brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. This is the people who are on the move. They are in haste. They don't have time to waste. They don't have an opportunity to even let the bread rise. Ian knows about this. They have to carry their bread machines on their backs, wrapped in their clothes. They are thrust out. They got to leave quick. We are called to be a community of urgency. In Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, we read these words from Paul. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. See, God calls us to be a people who walk in wisdom now. Now. We put to death the deeds of the flesh tomorrow? No. Now. Now. We don't wait until next week or next year or next decade to pursue righteousness. We pursue righteousness now. We are on the way now. This is urgent. We have been enslaved by our sin and we are free, friends. In which case, we can't stay there no more. (laughs) We got somewhere else to go. We are a people of urgency who are on the way. Put to death the deeds of the flesh Now, we are called to be urgent. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be enslaved for 430 years? If 25 years is a generation, that means that your great, 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 great grandparents came into Egypt. That's a lot of greats. That's a lot of waiting. If you've been waiting that long for freedom, when you hear the word go, what do you do? You go. You go now. We don't have time to waste. Jesus is coming back soon. Like the old saints used to say, we got to get our house in order <laughs> because he's going to come and we want to be ready. We are a people on the way. We are a people of urgency. We are a community on the way, which means we are a community of dependence. Look at verse 39 again. 
And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provision for themselves. These people left without any provision. Nothing. Just some unleavened cakes of bread. The kneading kneading bowls are on their shoulder. Can't use them right now. They leave not knowing where their water is going to come from. Not knowing where their meat's going to come from. Not knowing how long they're going to be out of Egypt. No guarantee or provision. But this seems to be how God seems to work. He is good enough and jealous enough to not allow us to put our dependence on anything else but him, at least not for long. You see, in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus sends out the 72, he told them this. He said, carry no money bag, carry no knapsack, carry no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Why not? Because I'm going to take care of you. You need to learn how to walk by faith. Because by your walking by faith is your redemption. You will find your own goodness as you depend more on me. You will find your own freedom as you trust more in me. So they left dependent on nothing else except for God alone who could save. This is a community on the way, a community of dependence. But not just a community on the way who is urgent or who is dependent. This is a community on the way that is a community of diversity. And this is beautiful. Look at verse 37 with me. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. That's about 2 million people, we can guesstimate. But that's not all. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. See, God didn't just let them leave by themselves. Freedom for Israel means freedom for others. An Old Testament commentator said. He said, would that every community where the people of God are gathered could be called a mixed crowd. See, God didn't just come to die for you. He came to die for you and all your friends and all your enemies. Amen. He didn't just come for me. He came for me and all my friends and all my enemies. See, here in the covenant community, there is not Greek or Jew. There is not circumcised or uncircumcised. There is not barbarian or Scythian or slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. This is a mixed community. We are not homogenous, except for in our trust in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We are a heterogeneous community, a mixed community. God told Abraham, I am going to bless you To bless the nations. So when the people leave Egypt, they are not alone. They are accompanied by a mixed multitude. This is a diverse community. And finally, it is a holy community. 
A community on the way is a community that is holy. Everybody say holy. This is a community that has been set apart. The fact that they are on their way means they have been set apart from their captors. They have been taken from. Verse 43 says, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You should not take any of the flesh outside the house. You should not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be, be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no circumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. You see, this people is a people who have the sign of the covenant. And that sign is circumcision. God had given to Abraham this sign saying all of your descendants will be marked by a sign. They will be circumcised. And now as God liberates his people, as God cleanses his people with the blood of the lamb and the angel of death passes over them, sparing them from death and now frees them from their captivity. He gives them a ceremonial memorial that says, I was with you and I will always be with you. But you got to be part of my people. You got to have the sign of my covenant. You got to wear in yourself the mark that you belong to me. You see, God's people is a visible people. One commentator says, the people of God have both an invisible spiritual and visible political integrity throughout the course of time. The church is both invisible and visible, mystical and political. The unity of Israel and the church is maintained internally by faith, hope, and charity. But that unity must also be made manifest externally through signs of affiliation to the covenant. Signs of affiliation to the covenant. My daddy, when I was brought into this world, gave me a name. That I wear. It's my last name. And I pass that name on to my children. I'm a member of his family. For those who have turned from their rebellious captivity in sin to trust in Jesus, we've been given a new name. We belong to a different master. And there are signs of that covenant community. Jesus says, Matthew 28, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. There is a ceremonial memorial that I am no longer who I was. I am part of a new community. I am dying to an old way of life. And I am being raised in a new way of life. Here's a few moments. We're going to go to a table and we're going to eat together. We're not just drinking juice and eating tortillas. 
This is a different kind of meal. Now, for those who are not in Christ, this is not the same meal. But for those who are in Christ, what we say every single Sunday is this. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. When we take the Lord's table, partake of the Lord's table, when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are participating in the covenantal remembrance that we couldn't save ourselves, that we couldn't bring ourselves to liberation, that we couldn't free ourselves from the bondage of sin. But there is one who did, who took the death that we deserved, whose body was broken like we deserve. When we eat of the one bread that is broken and passed to us and we eat of it, we are participating in a memorial celebration that we are the covenant people of God, that God will never break his promise. Because Jesus' bones, like this ceremonial lamb, his bones were not broken. We eat this meal in one house as one family who have one promise and one Lord and one faith and one baptism that makes us one. This is a mixed community that is wholly set apart, participating in God's promises for God's glory, because he is the only redeemer. We are a covenant community that is on the way. Amen? This is what we have been called to. So when we put to death the flesh, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, when we obey the voice of God, when he whispers, we are keeping vigil like God kept vigil on us. He was watching over us when we could not watch over ourselves. He has freed us when we could not free ourselves. Look at verse 42 in your text. We read these words, it, meaning this night in which two million people left Egypt, it was a night of watching by the Lord. On the first day that Israel came into Egypt, God saw them. On the 30th day when they came into Egypt, God saw them. On the 100th day when they came into Egypt, God saw them. On the 429th day, ninth year, God saw them. On the 430th year, God saw them. He kept vigil. We serve a God who never sleeps. He sees us. He saw us. He will see us. So, this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. We remember his death until he comes. The experience of freedom is hereby integrated with the confession of faith in the God who liberates. Exodus and Passover must be kept inextricably together 
if the reality of redemption is to be kept alive in the community. You see, when you take the Lord's Supper and I take the Lord's Supper and you walk in obedience and I walk in obedience, we are keeping alive the reality that God has redeemed us for himself. Our collective memory is important for our collective identity as the covenant community of God. As we go to the Lord's table today, let's remember that we serve a God who frees, who liberates, who calls us to himself, who calls us to each other, who keeps his promises, who makes us his community. Amen. Bow your heads with me. Let's pray. God, you have done more than we even could have asked. You are the God who always keeps your promises, who always does what he says. Help us. If there's anything that you have brought to mind, sin to confess, command to obey, example to follow. Help us, God, this morning to say yes to you. To surrender to you. To take up the truth of our identity as your covenant people. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come soon. Redeem all that we see. Help us. Have mercy on us. Be gracious to us.